This is episode 49 of Caucus Talk, your source for culture, history, and tourism in the North Caucasus mountains of Russia. My name's Andrew. And my name is Eli, and welcome back to the show. Andrew. Yes, Eli. Before we get started, I have a very, very special shout out to make. Great. We are releasing this on June 4th, uh-huh. and both my sister... And her daughter. Uh huh. Wrong. <laughs> both strong my, start. Both my sister and my niece. Uh huh. Have a birthday today, today on June fourth. That is awesome. Happy birthday, Yom Rajdini. Which which family members? Let's, this is my little sister. Give him a shout out. This is my little sister KJ. KJ, who's also coming up on her one year. Wedding anniversary. Awesome. The end of this month. KJ, congratulations. KJ. Going strong, right? Yes. Okay, good. Going strong. <laughs> and um, my niece, Eden, who KJ's middle name is Joy. That's what the J is. And Eden's middle name is Joy. Wow. So there. Now, are they Caucus Talk listeners? Are they listening to this right now? Well, I know I, you're. I won't say that that's not your a nephew. reason. Your 11-year-old nephew That's right, is man. listening. He says he listened to everyone. Uh, I won't say that that didn't cross my mind as a way to like flesh them out, you know, to see if they're listening. <laughs> Called out. But, but instead, I'll just, I'll just um, let them know that a shout-out's coming. Your mom will let them know. <laughs> Barrett, thanks for listening. The mother. Appreciate you. The mothership. Eli, it's ironic you mentioned that because I thought you were going to tell everybody that it's my birthday tomorrow, June 5th. Well, <laughs> that would <laughs> indicate that I had knowledge of that information. <laughs> Andrew! Hey. How, you don't look a day over 35. I am I'm processing that. How old are I'm you? I'm fine saying my age. 36. There we go. Just turn, turning 36 tomorrow. Own it. Got the gray hairs to prove it. Oh, Whatever, like maybe two. They're coming in strong. You hold no flame next to me. <laughs> I have way more gray hairs than you. Definitely in your beard. Guys can make this stuff into anything into a competition. <laughs> well, speaking of gray beards, we are talking today about an incredibly ancient subject. Oh, okay. I thought you were... Never mind. Come on, that was, an, that was a good transition. A segue to, <laughs> to write home about. And I'm almost positive our guest for this interview has a gray beard. Uh, yeah, based on his photo. That's right. <laughs> that's true. So today we have an amazing opportunity here from an expert, a true yeah. expert doesn't cover it. He's like a um, pioneer yeah. in the field of uh, research into the literature of the North Caucasus yeah. people and specifically the Nartz sagas. And specifically, what genre of literature would you call this? Mythology? Yes. Epic, poetry, and mythology. So, I mean, when we say expert, I mean, he's essentially in the Western world the leading. He's the expert. The source, the leading expert. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to get awesome. into what the Nartz is. These are basically the giant guys of old who did tremendous feats. And it is cool stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Really good. Really enlightening. But we have a few less tremendous feats 
of new from the giant guys of new from the giant guys of new <laughs> not the giant guys of old that we want to share a little bit before we get into today's interview we have not had this segment in a while story time with uncle andrew and oh uncle Eli. is that a segment yeah definitely done that one before like once we've lost our way we got to get back to our roots <laughs> andrew i keep waiting for a street name bro Strong start with what's in a street name, but it's sort of tapered Listen, off. I was in Dagestan recently, and I saw in so many street names, I didn't know who they were. I just got really overwhelmed. You know, that's where we're going with this. Dagestan, there is their main drag. They just did change the, they changed the name to Imam Shamil. Uh-huh. That's one street. And a big street, which used to be Lenin, yes. is now Gamzatov. Oh, wow. Which is the... A premier Dagestani poet. Um, Rasul Gam- Gamzatev. Yep. Yeah. Gamzatev. Yep. Cool. Um, well, hey, so I uh, had an amazing trip recently to Dagestan um, doing some research and uh, for tours we want to take groups on there in the future and so many memorable interactions along the way. Uh, I want to share two stories of local hospitality we encountered Absolutely. Um, these are not things you manufacture. They're things that just happen. So the first was uh, we drove into the Dagestani mountains from Chechnya, so from famous Lake Kazanoyam. And it's right there on the border with Dagestan. And uh, driving into Dagestan, that side of the mountains, you immediately see these villages. And I mean, whatever you want to call it, middle of nowhere, <laughs> out in the boonies. I mean. It's all of that. And then it's some. just incredible. You you're driving on these mountain roads, and all there's all these remote villages. This is not like the way most people get into Dagestan, right? No, this is more of a like kind of off roady type, like slinking over the mountains. No, but there's like a checkpoint there. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, they check your documents, but if you have the chance, highly recommend it. Amazing. Um, really beautiful, and so. We come to find out that this is uh, where the Andi or the Andi people live of Dagestan, one of the many small nations of Dagestan. And like being there, I just realized I've never met an Andi person before. I bet a lot of our listeners can relate to that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Which like in the Caucasus, you're always meeting people of different nationalities and consistently you meet Dagestanis, even in the central Caucasus, but never met an Andi person. You were, you were way out there. Yeah. And so we saw this one village way up high, and we were with um, my good friend Abdullah, um, and he said, I've never been there. Let's go up there. So uh, we uh, hauled it up there, up the road, and it was the, the highest standing Andi village in that region, Rikvani. Rikvani. And we basically drove through it. We took pictures. And on our way down, uh, one of the guests with us, an American lady, she told Abdullah, I would really like to find some local honey here. Huh. So he stops. By which you mean the, the food, not like a soulmate. <laughs> Found myself a honey, a local honey. <laughs> no, uh, local honey without the article, eh? Um, <laughs> and so he just stopped. We saw this older gentleman uh, in his yard. And he just asked him, he said, hey, excuse me, um, do you know if anybody sells honey here in the village? And he said, no, no, sorry, I don't know anybody who does that. And then right at that moment, yes. so we're speaking in Russian, right at that moment, this young, probably 10-year-old girl walks by, and she starts speaking to the older gentleman in 
Andi. Uh-huh. And it turns out, he, he says to us in Russian, oh no, she, she knows somebody who has honey here. And then he sees these other teenage boys walking up the street towards us. And he said, it's that guy's grandpa. <laughs> They're all walking home from school. They're all related. So he says, he basically commands that boy in the Andi language, get in the v- Jeep, take them to your grandpa's house. Perfect. And so this, this kid gets in the Jeep with us. He has no idea what's going on. It was really <laughs> funny. And so he drives us up to this one home, leads us up into their house. Amazing. And it, they have in this back room all these huge jars of different kinds of honey. And um, we end up talking with them a while, and they said, stay, you got to have tea with us. And nice. it ended up being the grandpa wasn't there, but we got on the phone with him, and he explained what was what. And it was these two uh, young moms who were there, and their husbands were at work. They both had uh, one-year-old babies. Ooh. They were so nice, and, um, but they served us tea and mm. sweets, and we had a great time with them. But awesome experience in this awesome. Andi village of Rikvani. Amazing. And uh, great hospitality, yeah. So that was really cool. Um, and then uh, we drove farther into the mountains. And we were in a more, it's not a touristy area, but it's one of the places a lot of tourists go to in Dagestan, Gunib, the Gunib area. Yeah. It's like a, easier to get to, at yep. least from the other direction where people normally it's come from. four hours-ish from either Derbent or Machkala, yeah. so a lot more accessible. And that's primarily all of ours live in that region. Were you, were you, was your head just dizzy from the roads? Were you I actually like was okay. I was jiggled and jangled. And- I was jiggled and jangled a lot. <laughs> I was more tired, if any, but as, didn't get sick or anything. Rocks and so stomach. we were trying to find these two abandoned villages, and on the way to seeking them out, we drove past this is not a quarry, but it's a place where a stonemason was doing his work. Okay, so it's all these different shapes of rocks and stone and. We just got out and walked up and started talking to him. He was chiseling out a uh, gravestone, I think. Mm-hmm. And as soon as he found out I was from America, he said, come on, let's have tea. You came from such a long way. We've got to have tea. He said, or have chai. Awesome. And so, I mean, this was like a rough and tumble kind of guy. Like, <laughs> I mean, just out in the hot sun doing his work. Yeah. Um, and why did you get out to talk to him? Just because uh, Abdullah is great like that, my friend. Like he's always looking for new contacts, new experiences. Right. And we were also trying to make sure we were actually not going the right way, oh. which these guys pointed us the right way. <laughs> but not without so tea first. It, it was a, a fortuitous stop. Huh. So, anyways, sat down with this guy. He uh, did hot tea for us over an open flame. Uh, with this tea kettle and then a couple his one neighbor rides up on a horse of course classic and then his other neighbor shows up i think he drove up but uh we just sat down with those guys and had chai and uh they had we actually ate honey straight off the honeycomb there Whoa. um but just two great examples of caucasus hospitality specific to dagestan people always drop what they're doing to take care of their guests and you d- it's not manufactured. It's just who they are. It's really cool. All right, man. This is in the spirit of sharing, but yes. I'm also going to share about Dagestan. This is not one upsmanship because A, it's all different. <laughs> yeah. B, let's just admit it. You'll never one up Andrew's stories. <laughs> That's just a fact that we have to live with. Uh, and C, um, I'm not that kind of guy, but I was also in Dagestan and. Different trip, different, different places. Different trip, different places. Yep. Um, I was there with 
um, a media focus. I was there with a, another uh, colleague of mine and we were doing yeah. uh, videography, documentary, mm-hmm. documenting uh, local craftsmen. Hopefully I'll awesome. be able to share more about that in yeah. a few weeks. Um, but naturally, you know, I, I'm gonna, the hospitality was amazing. I remember you said at, on one trip you mm-hmm. had tea something like seven times in one day. Which was conservative estimate. Yeah. yeah. And so I was keeping track. I think we had like, we were sat down to tea like four times a yeah. day on this trip. And I was like, Which okay, that's. Minimum of two. Yeah. Two glasses per oh, time. Oh, yeah, yeah. So like. <laughs> In terms of the cups of tea, <laughs> tea in, tea out. But uh, part of our trip was to go track down a local. So we were in a village called Unsukul, which is known for a metal inlay uh, uh, artist, artistry. And then our local uh, host took us up the backside of this mountain, up a zigzag road uh-huh. where it's like you don't see the road until you're on it. It's so like, oh, there's a road up here. Normal road in Dagestan. Yeah, right. Zigzag Over road. the top. Um, and into just totally open, pristine wow. wilderness to another village where they had a story of uh, their famous poet, um, I think it was Mahmoud, and his uh, lover, and and I was supposed to find a local to tell us this story. So we get hooked, we get to this little village, yeah, just you know hanging on the edge of this hillside, uh-huh. and the local schoolmaster guy. Whew, comes out and he's just chatting and joking and and he wants to tell us a story and I've got, I'm there with my gear I'm like sir we'd like to hear about it. And he's like yeah sure and it's like walking us all around the town and <laughs> chatting and and he takes us to his office and he shows us YouTube videos and I'm like this That's is awesome. this is not working and so finally <laughs> he turns to me he's like what do you want me to do like I'm I'm trying to get a, a retelling of the story of the poet and he's like okay now. We have to go to the right place. So Dagestanis are big on this. Like, <laughs> you, when it comes to music, arts, like yeah. there's a there's a thing about the place. Yeah. I mean, I remember my friend Bulat down in Nalchik. Shout out to Ored Recordings. He's like constantly recording local guys, and they always want to go, like up into the hills to yeah. do it. So he's like puts us in a Chevy Neva, and I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> and he just starts driving. Fifty percent of life in the out, North Caucasus. Yeah, out of the town. <laughs> On this little, like, rocky road, and we're on this, I mean, it felt like, you know, 30-degree incline, and he stops the car (laughs) on a hairpin turn with a drop-off, and he puts the brake on, he gets out, and he's chatting and smoking, and and he's like, this is a good spot. (laughs) So we're in the middle of this road, and and there's just this panoramic (laughs) view. I mean, it's breathtaking. Wow. And uh, so we set it up. We like get the tripods now, out. Was this spot? Did it have historical? Well, he wanted to go further, but a net like context or even further to another gotcha. village where uh-huh. there's no running water, no electricity. Wow. Is um, and I think it had some significance, but we told him <laughs> we enough's really... enough. So he like sits down on a, you know on a little piece of bro- busted rock, and we just get this interview. Wow. I mean, imagine if we'd done it. It actually his, happened. Yeah. Imagine if we'd done it like in his office or something. Huh. And so here we are with this just, I mean, we had to stop for like this car of seven people to like thunder down the road. And <laughs> um, anyway, it was 
pretty wild. On our way back, we stopped at a village at the crest of this hill, totally windblown, no trees. Wow. Where So in the first village, the poet has a grave, and it's this beautiful monument of a woman weeping, like her head down, just weeping. Huh. And I thought, you know, I'm from D.C. We have a lot of monuments. Yeah. You would never see something like that. And to find this mm. tiny little speck of a village yeah. that has this beautiful monument and showing their how much they're mourning for the loss of their poet. Wow. It's really touching. But the woman he was in love with was buried in this other village. Anyway, so we stopped at this village at dusk, and um, half of the village is abandoned mm-hmm. and like has ruins in it. Yeah. And so today in this second village that we went to, there is a total of 10 people living. Wow. Like two families? Yeah. Wow. And that's where they live. And I was walking down a road following our guy, and one of the ladies was trying to catch a, a lamb, a baby lamb that came running right at me. <laughs> I think I dropped my camera, <laughs> and I grabbed that baby lamb. I got it. Nice. Yeah. Snatched it like a farm boy. <laughs> I'm sure that was the first time in the history of that village that an American uh, passerby yeah. saved the baby yes. lamb from, from running the away. The clutches of his mummy. He was <laughs> very docile once I picked him up and gave him back. I kind of wanted to keep him. Man, good stuff. Andrew's busting, like bursting with stories right now. He wants to tell from Dagestan, but we're going to have to move on. Biting my lip. have to move on. We have such good content coming about... The Nards. Yeah, and let's be honest, uh, our guest, Dr. Colarusa, much better storyteller than the two of us. Uh, yeah. So here it is. Without further ado. Dr. John Colarusa. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. John Calaruso. Right. This is our very first interviewee who has his very own Wikipedia page. <laughs> That's probably not what he thought we were going to say off the bat. Pretty awesome. Google him. You but can find it. Yeah. For, for us, that's, that's, yeah. that's big news. <laughs> There's some inaccuracies and stuff that shouldn't be there or should be. Well, uh, should be and is not. So anyway, yeah, Eli, I do have one. Eli actually has a history, history of uh, updating Wikipedia entries. So This is true. We'll, uh, <laughs> we'll take care of that for you. Well, Dr. Coloroso, okay. it's, an, it's an honor to have you here on the show. Do you mind just giving a brief introduction of yourself to our listeners? Um, tell us a little about yourself, where you're from. And uh, kind of your professional and academic work that got you connected to the North Caucasus. Okay. Well, I'm an American right now. I'm a dual citizen. I've been in Canada now since '76. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, but I was born in San Diego, California. Spent the first uh, three and a half years of my life in Mississippi. There we go. <laughs> where my mother came from, and then. Uh, the rest uh, in Newark, New Jersey, where my father came from, okay. one of the world's great slums. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, I went off. I went off to university on a scholarship. I uh, went to Cornell and okay. uh, then um, uh, took ancient Greek. And it turned out that apparently I'm something of a polyglot, or was something of a polyglot, because I picked up the Greek very quickly. And uh, this is probably due, I probably owe that to my old Italian grandmother, 
Wow. With whom I spoke uh, Italian, and it would translate between her and my mother. Wow. Now, I say Italian, Italian advisedly because they were from the hills above Barry, and um, it certainly wasn't standard Italian. It's not <laughs> what you're going to get in the movies. Right. <laughs> but um, anyway, uh, and we now know, uh, we now suspect that uh, people exposed more than one language as children actually acquire an extra speech area in their cortex. Huh. No kidding. Uh, that they didn't, yeah, yeah, that they didn't use to, to pick up other languages. Um, and uh, in any event, uh, I started in physics, and my supervisor took my scholarship away to give to his nephew. Ouch. <laughs> true story. Yeah, true story. <laughs> he will so, remain uh, unnamed on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yes, well, let him let him let him lie. And uh, I went. Into, I had two degrees in philosophy as a result, re- result and, and I did the ancient Greek there. And um, then I just just decided to pursue languages. So I spent two years at Harvard. And I studied uh, Georgian there, and I studied Farsi. Wow. Uh, and then um, after a short break uh, working, I came back, and I just simply went into linguistics. Um, so linguistics matched my capacity for interest in languages and also the kind of formalism that came with my mathematical bent. Sure. My, my mother was, my mother had two, two degrees in mathematics. So, wow. and my youngest, my eldest brother is a, a math prof. Um, so huh. it's a gene, I believe <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, and I was at Harvard and, and I had done this Georgian and, uh, uh, I had done some Armenian too while I was uh, still getting philosophy degrees, and uh, because there was an Armenian church that I walked by my way to and from wow. <laughs> in classes, and uh, so anyway, uh, someone handed me a fellow in Calvert Watkins, late Calvert Watkins at Harvard, handed me a cassette done by W. Sidney Allen in in England, and he said, "You know, Allen says this language only has two vowels." I think he's full of it. <laughs> Tell me what you think. <laughs> so this was a re- <laughs> literally what he said. <laughs> so this was a recording of a baza, and I spent the next month writing out a phonetic transcription. Wow. Of this fifteen minute night side, That's what it was, uh, and I can still recite it in my head. You know, like forty years later. That is amazing. Um, All right, I'm just got to jump and, in right and, there. And, can Can you give us even just a, a clip from what's in your head, even if it's not accurate? <laughs> Andrew, help him out, man. That was that was fluent <laughs> Abaza. That was amazing. <laughs> Abaza, yeah, and I was astounded by the language. And uh, so then, uh, with the help of a uh, uh, professor, he was outside my committee. They call it extra mirrors outside the walls. Uh, uh, he uh, was Hans Fucht uh, of Oslo, um, who uh, helped me learn Ubuch. Um, Ubuch, uh-huh. Mm. Ubuch, yeah, that's transitional between Circassian and Abkhaz, and, uh, or Baza. Abkhaz, Abkhaz is like a dialect of Abkhaz. Yes. Um, or sort of like Portuguese versus Spanish. Okay, it's so close. let me... But, can I, Ubuch's in between. Let me interrupt uh-huh. right real quick, Dr. Kaluri, so... Uh, no. I, Eli and I are tracking with you because we know all the Caucasus languages. Oh yeah, I'm I, totally I want to make sure our listeners are hearing this. So, you're in mm-hmm. uh, graduate school. You studied I'm at Harvard. Yes, you studied mm-hmm. the Georgian language, so that's South Caucasus, as well as mm-hmm. Armenian on your own, also South Caucasus. Then mm-hmm. you were handed a tape 
uh, kind of randomly of the Abaza, Abaza language, which is Northwest mm. Caucasus. That's uh, like primarily in Karachay uh, Cherkessia now. Those kinds of things happen at Harvard all the time. People pass <laughs> tapes of, you know, length, stuff like that. It's normal. And then uh, you started studying the Ubik language, which is now an extinct language, but that's one of the uh, former Circassian languages. So listeners, I, I don't know if you caught all that, but it's kind of an amazing succession of one Caucasus language to the another in New England. <laughs> wow. Yes. It's strange. It's it, 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 it's just a bit of a strange personal history, uh, uh, and uh, I am part of an effort to try to revive Ubuk um, because there are still some Ubuk families uh, yeah. down around Sochi. Sochi is actually an Ubuk city, and it's Ubuk for sure, which is sea, and che, which is side, so seaside. Yes, Sochi. So, okay. um, so. Uh, there, I do have I do have a sister in Istanbul who speaks Ubuk, and so there are still a few people around. But certainly, it, it's very uh, it's what we call moribund in linguistics. So I yeah. got my degree in '75 from Harvard, taught at Vienna for a year, didn't like it, and uh, uh, my wife at that time, and we've since been divorced, but she obtained a job mm-hmm. in Canada here. Okay, I was unemployed for one year, and then their local linguist just got up in the middle of the term and wandered off. Off literally to an ashram in Nepal. <laughs> wow! <My laughs> and they gosh. needed the language very badly, very quickly, <laughs> and so they took, they grabbed me. <laughs> and, wow! Um, so <laughs> there, there was that, and I began I began to work on the myths. I um, uh, I found trying to deal with the the orthodoxy as dictated by Noam Chomsky that dominated uh, the theoretical world of linguistics, very difficult to deal with. Uh-huh. And uh, so I started doing a lot of mythology because I knew the languages. And, and when I came here, when I was at Harvard, there were still people I could go visit in Jersey that, that spoke these things. Ossetian, too. I left Ossetian now. I also studied, uh, uh, worked with an old Ossetian who had been friends of Leon Trotsky. Uh, <laughs> he, was in, he was in New Jersey. And so I did Ossetian as well. And the uh, Goran, uh, the more conservative dialect. Yes. Uh, and then, right, then uh, here there were no, there was no one to talk to, so I began to translate these tales to keep the languages alive. And uh, then I went through a divorce, and then my, my uh, present wife, after we've been married 32 years, uh-huh. she was looking through a file drawer. She was, "What's all this junk in this file drawer?" <laughs> I said, "Oh, those are all these old uh, Nart sagas." She said, "What are they doing in the file drawer? Get this stuff out there and publish it." <laughs> All right. And so uh, Princeton University Press published um, a volume of Nart Sagas that I put together and translated with the help of uh, of people down in New Jersey. Wow. And uh, uh, then uh, there was another one of Ossetian material. And that got held up in somebody else's divorce and a desktop publishing effort. But eventually, after 14 years, I extracted that from those people. And Princeton published that one as well. So I did, there's a third volume of Nart Sagas from a European publisher called Lincom that's in the original languages all analyzed. And they're also translated, but if you want to see how the languages work, wow. or you can buy that volume and, and go through those uh, blow by blow. The languages are extraordinarily complicated. Yes. Uh, very rich in sound, very rich in meaning, very complex. And if you're if you're into that kind of thing, and occasionally if someone comes along who is, they become a linguist. Wow. These languages are fascinating. Was your friend right that there are just two uh, vowels in that language? 
Abaza. Abaza? Yes. Yeah, yeah, just two. Yeah, they're sort of the mirror image. They're sort of the mirror image of most languages on Earth. So, right. uh, in other words, most languages, the consonants assimilate to the vowels. So you have ki for ki and k for kar, that kind of thing. But in these languages, the vowels assimilate to the consonant. Oh, <laughs> they man. think they see it the other way around. Uh, just a mirror image of what uh, 99 point, I actually figured it out, 99.74% of all languages on Earth do. Uh, these little, this little group does it. And there are, there are now other languages being recognized that have this kind of pattern. Interesting. This is no longer confined just to the caucus. So there's an option for human perception, it seems. It's weird. Wow. It's strange. It's fascinating if you're caught up in that kind of stuff. I hear your psychology degree coming through, or philosophy degree coming through. Very good. <laughs> yeah. Possibly. Yeah. 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 So, listeners, we didn't actually give you uh, Dr. Colarusso's job description. So you are a professor of anthropology, linguistics, and languages at McMaster University in Ontario, correct? That's correct. I'm actually in two departments. I'm in anthropology and I'm in linguistics and languages. Uh-huh. So we're going to, we want to really hone in on uh, the linguistics and languages today. And specifically, you mentioned these myth stories from the North Caucasus the Nart sagas. Mm-hmm. So can you just Nart give sagas. to, I would assume most of our listeners have not heard of these before. What are the Nart sagas and um, what's their origin? And um, yeah, please explain, give us some context for what those are. Okay. These are a set of heroic tales that are found all across the North Caucasus uh-huh. and over the mountains in Abkhazia to the south and a little bit in the Georgian highlands among the so-called Svans. It's hard, it's hard to classify them. Um, sagas are usually family histories and they are not that. Um, but they, they borderline, borderline legends and myths. Okay. Um, so people do things in them that are humanly impossible. Right. There are gods running around in them, things like that. Um, and they're really quite quite striking. They they have tales that are very dramatic and very compelling. And um, people that I have had feedback from say they really love reading it. And one guy used some passages in his wedding vows. Wow! <laughs> and asked my permission. I said, "Fine, yeah, good luck." You know. Huh. So uh, these, uh, I, I think what's what's really important about these is that they're at a crossroads, as is the Caucasus, between Asia and Europe uh-huh. and Middle East, even North Africa. And <clears throat> they reflect a rich kind of a mosaic of themes uh, from all these various areas. They sort of act as a kind of bridging tradition uh-huh. between uh, themes or traditions that are otherwise fairly well separated, like those, say, of India or Iran versus, let's say, of the of Norse or Irish, huh. that kind of thing. But you can find stuff in the Nart sagas that go from both. Wow. So are, um, would you say that the Nart sagas are kind of a mishmash, like they borrow from, or would you say that they are source mm-hmm. material for both both Norse and Indian or Iranian mythology, or can you tell? Okay, yes. Now, look, all, all folklore, including the Nart sagas, is usually a pastiche of a variety of Sure. Traditions and sources. Good stories also are rolled together for entertainment value. Uh, <laughs> so there's some material in our sagas. It's very clearly linked exactly to the Caucasus. I talk about someone on top of a mountain and that kind of thing. Huh. But there's other material that seems to take it out and onto the steppes of Eurasia, mm. to that great prairie between Hungary and China, that mm. a huge Silk Road area and all. And uh, the, the themes, the matches and themes are not 
borrowings. They don't look, look like borrowings. There are some, <clears throat> but generally they are, are common descent from some kind of earlier prototype that has spread out, say, to India, down to Europe, uh, and has has been left in the Caucasus. And the latest uh, convergent ideas is that uh, these are what they call Indo-European motifs or myths, that uh-huh. these go back to a kind of hypothetical mother language that mm. spread out by nomadic expansion and then differentiated over centuries and millennia sure. and gave rise to things as, dif- as different as Hindi on one hand, say, and Welsh on the other, but we can show they're all related. And these seem, these these tales in the Nart Saga seem to be kind of a middle ground because we now think that the Indo-Europeans were actually north of the Caucasus, huh. just north of it, and in fact, probably in contact with these people. Um, and the Circassian term Adiva, the self-designation, is probably the same one as the Indo-European self-designation of Aryo, as you get an aristocrat and all that. Hmm. Um, so they have preserved things that have also been preserved elsewhere, but they've done it, they've preserved more. <laughs> and they've preserved stuff that in many cases is lost on one side or the other. Right. So they're really, they're really a rich source of material for people who want to uh, read tales. If you read the Greek stuff and you want more, go to the art side. If you read Sanskrit stuff and you want to hear more about the Thunder God, go to the art side. Wow. Nice. <laughs> uh, and so I, I think they're a treasure trove in this regard. Agreed. So would you say probably most of our listeners are familiar, at least with the basics of Greek mythology? Um, how would you uh, you teach a course, I believe, on comparative mythology? Correct. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I do. So how would you compare the Nart sagas with Greek mythology as far as figures, themes, stories? Well, let's let's talk about Prometheus. Who uh, is, this is probably a Caucasian tale that the Greeks have adopted. But Prometheus, because he tricked the gods, he was punished. He was chained to a mountain in the Caucasus. Yep. Eventually, eventually Hercules came along and released him. Right? But you get a precisely uh, a series of tales like this of some some giant person or, or creature, human-like, chained to the top of a mountain. Now that person could be up there because they're bad person could be up there because they're being punished that person uh-huh. or whatever and then along comes a hero and if the if the creature up on top is bad he reinforces the <laughs> the bonding if the, the person or, or a giant up on top is good he releases them right you know, this after, actually after some fighting so um uh, that's one that's one thing uh, another one is um the uh, business of the cyclops okay hmm. uh, so as in most folklore or whatever, they're, they're, a hero has to fight a giant and has to deal with a giant. And, and um, I was talking to one of my teachers from New Jersey, and um, he, he said, well, of course, you know that the giant only has one eye. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> yeah, he only has one eye. <laughs> he only has one eye. He's a cyclops. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> okay, and... Now, there's actually, I did come upon one, one tale in which it's mentioned that he has one eye. But this is what in folklore we call assumed knowledge. A bard, a bard talking to an audience assumes they know a certain amount of stuff. Uh-huh. And he won't include it in the tale because I, they all know that. You know? Right. No point mentioning it. Right. And that's the material that's always lost <laughs> because 100 years later, the, context. the audience no longer. Wow. Yeah, they don't know the context. It's gone. The context is always gone. And so this was an example of context. Um, and this was, um, 
um, something that, that almost went missing. Uh, so the giant, the Yanij, uh, there he is, okay? Um, uh, let's, let's, see, let's go to India for a second there, yeah, and maybe Norse. Um, so there's a great storm god in India who fights a serpent, kind of a rival storm, huh. storm god. And this is Indra, right? And you go to Norse, uh, and Thor fights another storm god, fights a giant serpent there. Yeah. And there's some variation in the purpose of the serpent. Um, a serpent causes a, a drought in, in India, and in Norse, the serpent keeps the water of the universe in, in place, sort of the opposite fun, kind of function. But in any event, if you go uh, and go through the history uh, of, the, of the two human form storm gods, there are all these sort of mysterious, strange things. So, mm-hmm. for example, in uh, India, they, they say the waters um, were kind to Indra. Indra's a strong god. The waters were kind to Indra, uh, and Indra uh, stood up. It says, no one, no one who studies Sanskrit and works on these things has ever been able to figure those out. So you go to the art sagas, there it is. Indra, like Moses in the boat, Indra's put in a basket and put in wow. the water, just you know, kind of classic hero, hero babyhood. Uh, he's washed down, but the, but the waters spare him, and yet he also enters into a grave mound. So he also he's, he sort of dies, and but he grows prodigiously. Right. He stands up, and in the grave mounds that have been excavated by Russian archaeologists, you know, uh, there is a, usually a giant pillar in the middle that holds up the chamber. And from this often are hanging uh, the weapons of the deceased. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And uh, so he, he stands up. And what he does, he stands up to take down the weapon. And that's exactly what happens in, in Valhalla, the Hall of the Dead mm. in Norse. Odin hangs a huge sword from the great tree in the middle of the hall. Right. And it's a grave <laughs> And what happens is these heroes are resurrected. And uh, you get several large heroes who come from the grave mound. They are resurrected. Mm. And if you want uh, a, a, some idea of where the theme of resurrection came from, uh, this is this is a beautiful uh, illustration of a, of a probable source of the idea of a resurrected hero. So uh, this is one of the more profound and interesting things you can tease out of the heart sagas by comparing it uh, with other wow. other things. Thor, there was an incident in Norse where Thor almost died. <laughs> okay. Eventually, he will die at the end of the world. But uh, um, uh, so Thor is almost a resurrected hero, and, and uh, um, he was involved with blessing life and whatnot, fertility. The other thing that's interesting is that in Indra, we have a name that does not suit any kind of reconstructed material that we can deal with from the history of the languages of India. Huh. We don't know where the name the name comes from. The name also occurs in Hittite, which is the oldest. Uh, Indo-European uh, wow. language and has the oldest mythology as a woman, Inara or Inra. This is actually a Circassian word. That means the great one. Yin is great and Ra is a kind of parcel blending. Wow. It means the one who's who's huge, who's big and powerful. Mm-hmm. And it was borrowed into, into Indo-European from the neighbors to the south. Uh, uh-huh. And spread out and uh, uh, is a hallmark of certain traditions. Um, wow. So, so it's it's, it's uh, you can dig all kinds of stuff. I, wow. I did a few pieces on it. I have a few more I want to do. I have younger scholars now who want to look at this stuff, and uh, I think this will change our understanding of the old mythology 
uh, of um, not only uh, Europe, but also of India and Iran as well. You can tease the Iranian things out. Well, it's almost like a key the that unlocks itself, a bunch North of... It's almost like a key that unlocks a bunch of locks or or uh, kind of answers a bunch of riddles along the way um, and just makes you assume that there's probably more where that came from. Yeah. You know, Dr. Calarusso, you're, you're, uh, you're confirming for me what I knew all along, that all things originate in the North Caucasus. This is something we hear all the time here. <laughs> we're, we're told regularly. <laughs> but no, that's really, that's really interesting. Well, you see, geneticists have recently identified what they think or claim would be a, um, a Indo-European gene, and uh, they also um, um, tie tie the gene flow from Iran very early up into the Caucasus, and then from the Caucasus up into the steppes. And um, uh, the archaeologists also identify uh, the area around Mykop, just to your west. Uh-huh. Uh, as the area in which spoked wheels were invented and in which uh, chariots uh, were invented. And these also went up into the prairies just north. Wow. Um, so the idea is that somehow uh, the nucleus for these technological inventions and for the genetics and all this, this is tied into the advent of nomadism and the spread of the Indo-European languages into Europe and down to Asia and whatnot. Um, so this is, these are recent findings in archaeology and genetics, and I myself have argued that actually uh, Indo-European is, is distantly related to the mother language of Circassian and Abkhazian. Well, um, there are a few Indo-Europeanists who buy into it, but not too many. It's heretical. <laughs> Man, so uh, you mentioned these uh, Caucasus North sagas, Dr. Kalarusso, uh, which are the primary mm-hmm. Caucasus nations or peoples that uh, have North sagas? Is it in all of the different Caucasus nations? You know, they say there's more than 40 different peoples or languages spoken no. here in the North Caucasus. No. Which ones primarily no. have those? Yeah, well, the, the, the Abkhazians, Ubers, and Circassians okay. have North sagas. Okay. Um, probably the richest and most complex were those among the Circassians. Okay. Um, the material I translated was only 10% of the collection. Um, and that was done up by the scholar, the late Oscar Hadegatl from uh, my cop. Um, and he had seven volumes, <laughs> which have now been reprinted. Wow. Um, but I, I, I had my, my, we had a little team going, uh, two, two fellows from New Jersey and a woman from New York. And they selected some stuff and said, hey, this is a good one. Why don't you include this one? They gave me literal translations, which were very difficult. (laughs) I had to go through and basically redo this stuff myself. But um, the material is very rich and very old. Hmm. Uh, Then the Ossetians have have a a very rich um, collection. Okay. Somewhat different from the Circassian. And um, I collaborated with a Ossetian scholar and uh, edited those and put those out. And then you go further east again, you get into what they call Weinach territory, the sure. Inush and the Chechens. Yes. Yeah. And they have Narts. They have Nartsagas too. I have that collection, but I haven't had a chance to, to translate that. Probably won't have <laughs> a chance. But, wow. Um, uh, and then once you start going farther east, a little north or south, the Dagestan territory, they feed her out. We don't get them. 
Uh-huh. It's also Turkic people, Turkic Karachai Balkars that live among the Circassians. Uh-huh. Sure. And they too have they too have Nartsak. So I have a question about uh, these collections that you're translating from. This is more of a personal question. Andrew might have me uh-huh. clip this out of the interview, but What's the chance that there are still, I mean, these were an oral tradition for a, a long time. I mean, up until, it sounds like till the 20th century even, you know, before they were really collected, recorded, and then devoted to text. So I'm wondering, you know, how confident are you that the, your source material is exhaustive? And is there a chance that there are variations and other tales kind of still rattling around out there in the mountains? Oh no, it's still it's still oral, um, and in fact, you can go on um, uh, YouTube. And uh, uh, well, he died last year. There was a guy named uh, Jamocha Hamjaj Jamocha in Jordan. Mm. Um, had lunch, lay down for a nap, and didn't wake up. Poor guy. Mm. Um, and um, he was helping to translate and present. Uh, Actual oral accounts of Narsadas wow. are still being recited, um, and th- there was one that was very ancient. It was it had characters in a position. They had they had a character named Totaresh, who's usually um, portrayed as a villain, but in this oral recounting, Totaresh was a hero, and he actually is fighting a snake, uh, a giant snake, and that's the, the only Narsada. Where a giant snake makes a makes a uh, an appearance. There are other monsters, but this this is the only one of the giant. And there it is, oral. It's right there. You can hear this guy strumming enchanting uh, wow. this. And Jamocha put the translations underneath it. They put the Circassian and the English underneath it. So if you um, Google Totaresh, maybe it might it might come up. I have the reference somewhere. I can email it to. Yeah, that um, would be great to link to the show notes. For this episode, yeah. they're still working. They're still pumping them out. They're still oral. Wow! How far back do these stories go? I mean, what century are we talking about that they originated? Do, are we able to know that pretty confidently? No, uh, in fact, you really can't answer a question like that about <laughs> folkloric uh, traditions. Um, there are components that can be fairly recent uh, in a tale, and then other components that may be thousands of years old. Wow. Um, and so uh, you, can, you can be reading about something that's very familiar and you say, oh, huh, then, you know, that's the Cyclops of Greece or blah, blah, like right. that. And then someone shoots off a cannon. A cannon. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so um, they, they're ahistorical in that sense. They're just thrown together by bards to yeah, yeah. entertain their audience. And they'll appropriate uh, whatever they think will, will be entertaining. Uh, they largely, it's a mixture of... of Memorization and innovation. Would you say but that the, the memorization the, part? Sorry, go ahead. It's where the old stuff it can be found because that's just passed down, whether it makes sense or not. Hmm. They'll often keep. Do the Nart sagas follow kind of the kind of the oral formulaic theory that the bards who perform them, where they kind of have little little um, chunks and segments that are memorized, but they alter them a little bit but patch them together in basically the same way? Or is it like really strictly memorized from generation to generation? Well, they try to memorize it as best as they can. Really? Okay. But there's always going to be noise, noise creeping in. Yeah. Right? And if you uh, find 
components that make no sense. Chances are you're looking at something that's there only because it was memorized uh-huh. and is actually very old, and in the, the context that gave it sense has fallen away. Uh, I'll give you an example. There's one in which the hero fights a bunch of monsters to release someone from top them out. <clears throat> and uh, you see Vertra in India, the, the great storm serpent, the evil, the evil, it means strangler, uh, same word as English, worry. Um, it's on top of a mountain. It's got all the waters locked up on top of a mountain. Uh, so to try to release this creature up there, that's, that's also what's going on in the India, Indic myth, right? And this hero is fighting, he's fighting these various demons. And then there's a line that says, and the bird flew over his head. Okay. Now, hmm. the, 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 the evil bird has already been killed. Right? So it's not the evil bird. Uh-huh. And then there's, never, there's no, not another reference to it at all. But if you go back to the Indian struggle uh, of Indra trying to, to kill that, uh, release that serpent from on, up above to release water, uh, he's helped by a bird that flies over his head and brings him uh, mead, actually, to, to strengthen him and, and to give him the courage and vigor. Um, uh, so this is a, a last echo of that helping bird, an eagle, uh, <laughs> that has popped up in the Caucasus. Wow. Uh, it's just... It's, Flying over his head, say, but then it's gone again. You know? Interesting. <laughs> the rest of the, the function, it's, it's obliterated. It's not there anymore. So interesting. That's, that's what I look for when I do comparative mythology. Let me ask, um, themes mm-hmm. kind of in Caucasus culture and history are things like uh, honor, loyalty, um, mm-hmm. hospitality. Uh, I mean, I could go on and on. Respect. So do you... Would you say these themes are very strongly reflected in the Narts? Oh, oh yes. Yeah. You, you do get that. This is a repository for cultural values. Uh-huh. Uh, there's one hero uh, named Pataraz, Patraz uh, in Ossetian, um, who is the best of the Narts, supposedly. Now, in Ossetian, he tends to be a bit wild and crazy, but uh-huh. uh, what makes him best of the Narts is that he's hospitable, that he is, restrains his passions mm-hmm. and his appetites, uh, that he always conducts himself in a dignified and, and honorable manner. Wow. Uh, but foremost, foremost above all else, he swears vengeance uh, <laughs> because of his origin. Wow. Um, his father is, is murdered while he's not even born. Mm. And so while he's still in his mother's womb, he swears vengeance wow. against his father's killers. Uh, so um, uh, it's a long, a long tale. It's one of the favorite tales uh, that, that's recited as the epic of Chamesh uh, Pataraz, uh, Pataraz, son of Chamesh, and uh, he, by by exacting vengeance, he doesn't slaughter anybody, but he uh-huh. makes them do impossible tasks. He brings doom. He's sort of like an antichrist. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and he he counters the prince of prince of death. He feeds death, but comes back. But he looks like a corpse. He's not recognizable, just like Jesus coming back out of the, out of the um, uh, grave cave, the cave. Uh, and he's not his bad hair and bad skin is a phrase, huh. uh, which means he looks like a corpse. And he brings doom upon the hearts, <laughs> wow. as opposed to bringing salvation. So it's just like a mirror image of, of the Christian Savior. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's, it's by upholding the idea of vendetta. Uh, vendetta has been sort of put on hold in, in the Caucasus because of, mm-hmm. of uh, imposition of modern culture. But it was traditionally uh, considered the, the most severe 
and demanding ob- obligation, and uh, you had to encourage uh, your clan against the other clan, whatever, for seven generations. Uh, an obligation of vendetta. Well, well I'm going to butcher it, but there's some proverb that's like a man who takes vengeance, like in his own lifetime, is hasty or something like that. You know, you know, they sort of expect, mm-hmm. you know, that the 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 debt will be paid forward. These values sort of dovetail and form a kind of a system. So if you're going to restrain your passions and walk with dignity and whatnot, it means that your your chances of breaking into hostility are fairly low. Hmm. And therefore, your chances of, of entering into uh, an accident, accidentally killing somebody or something and incurring their vengeance is very low. So the idea sure. is to comport yourself a certain way, and you're likely to be able to, to live your life without getting in, involved in these kinds of violent uh, scenarios. Um, yeah, so it, it, it's, it's interesting how, um, how it all works. Uh, and by hospitality, too, if someone arrives and you offer them hospitality, and then somebody turns up looking for that person uh, to be as a, uh, <clears throat> as a uh, say the object of vengeance. Right. Uh, the host too has to defend that person even with their life. Yep. Um, so you cannot allow a guest to be killed uh, on your time, even if they are properly the object of vengeance. Mm. Man, that really it's quite quite something. Yeah, you of course really... they run, used to run around with all these with all these daggers. And, <laughs> the kinjals yep now it's just um, the kids who wear them when they dance they were serious bunch. they were serious bunch i mean you bring up a good point you know uh historically and still today in some of the republics these codes of honor are lived by or code of ethics they're called like i know among uh circassians it's called uh habzi i think and uh, among english it's called esdil yeah habza yeah and so, but it's for that purpose, like you said, that it would give you the greatest possible chance to live an honorable life. Um, man, good stuff. Uh, Dr. Calariso, I would love to keep talking with yeah. you. Um, I do want to, we're going to wrap this up soon. I want to give um, our readers uh, a, a shout out about two books you have published. Our listeners. Yeah, I'm you sorry. want to be readers. That's right. Someday they'll be readers. <laughs> But uh, you have two books on Amazon to be purchased about the North Sagas. The first uh, is Ancient Myths and Legends of the Circassians and uh, Abhazians, and then also uh, Ancient Myths and Legends of the Ascetians. Yeah, ta- yeah, tales, yeah, Tales of the Narts. Yeah, tales of the Narts is the Ascetian. Yeah, so listeners, go on Amazon, or um, I'm just going to say go on Amazon. Maybe <laughs> Alibaba if you're in a different country. I'm not sure where you order your... Uh, AliExpress. That's what it is. Not Alibaba. Yeah. But uh, type in John Calaruso or Nart Sagas, and this will come up. And you can get us a thick copy of uh, these tales. What was really funny is I did get my own copy over Christmas. Unbeknownst to me, Andrew had already reached out to you, Dr. Calaruso. So I get back, (laughs) and he said, oh, yeah, we're talking with this guy. I was like, oh. I've got his book. <laughs> of course, Andrew only gave me like a week to to read it, so I'm into it, but I'm not through it by any stretch. But it's wonderful. I mean, and actually, what's really funny is it was on my wish list. I got two copies for Christmas. That's awesome. And one of them I left with my mom, and she's just been plowing through it. I mean, wow. And she finds it fascinating. So you don't have to be a specialist. It's very accessible. There's There's, you know, footnotes for those who want to go deeper, of course, but... I highly recommend it. Shout out to 
the mom. <laughs> yeah. So, Dr. Calariso, um, we end all of our interviews with our guests with this question. I would love to know if there's one thing you could tell the world about the North Caucasus, what would it be? Uh, they're a people of enormous uh, loyalty and bravery. Uh, and if you have anything to do with them, you want them to be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was great. I'm going to tell my uh, Caucasus friends you said that, that they are a people of great loyalty and bravery. That, that's very well said. Well, Dr. Calaruso, thank you so much. It was an honor to have you uh, on the podcast. And uh, I, I'm positive. Well, thank you. Thank yeah, you. positive it's going to be a learn, good learning experience for everybody. And like I said, you can just be sure that you'll hear from us again because this was not even the tip of the iceberg. And there's just, you, you're, you're such a, um, an amazing resource for this part of the world and obviously a real proponent. So thanks for the work that you're doing. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate your, your, your enthusiasm. Uh, being a linguist, sometimes your your output's very arcane and read by maybe six or seven people. Yeah. <laughs> so, and in this case, it seems that people enjoy enjoy the books, which is, to, to me is very gratifying. All right. Well, Dr. Kalarisa, thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, well, they're saying, Sir Gash, I'm, I'm off. It's a big blessing. <laughs>